Heavenly Father, give us the eyes and the stomach of a prophet. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The other day I saw a striking painting by the realist Pat Roca. It's a black and white painting depicting a man suddenly waking up from sleep, clearly from a nightmare. And on the wallpaper behind this man uh, were pictures of Jewish children and adults wearing the, the armbands with the Star of David. And there is a on the wall is also a hazy picture of this same man when he was younger, dressed as a Gestapo officer, a member of the SS. And the title of the painting is The Burden of Memory. The painting is clear. It depicts the haunting of a man whose life had gone in the wrong direction. The prophet Amos has an unfortunate name because of its meaning The name Amos means burdened, or the bearer of a burden. And he did have a burden to bear, a difficult task, not so much to comfort the afflicted, but to afflict the comfortable. Uh, Many people think that the central intention of religion is to relieve our burdens, and in a sense, that's true. But as Newton put it, grace taught my heart to fear Before it, my fear is relieved. And before religion can do its true consoling work, it places upon our shoulders a burden that neither we nor our forefathers could bear. This is Amos's task. I want to break down our passage into three parts, about which I'll speak. He begins with an autobiography, continues by talking about his voice, or the voice of God. Lastly, we have six oracles spoken to various neighbors of Israel and Judah. I hope that the result of this passage preached would be that we would have the eyes and stomach of a prophet. The autobiography is important. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Something about the time and then something about the man. The time is significant because it offers us a lot of details. It gives us the names of politicians and even dates his revelation based on a natural disaster two years before the earthquake. Why the details? It's because biblical religion is by its very nature historically tied. Uh, The heart of our religion, the heart of it, is not secured by philosophical or metaphysical speculation, or even by heroic myth stories. Our religion, if I can put it this way, happened in time and space. Something actually occurred that is datable. The information that we have in the book of Amos, along with its date, is significant. This is a brief aside, but an important one. You may know that there are lots of people within what they call Pentateuchal scholarship. The Pentateuch are the first five books of the Bible, uh, traditionally uh, believed to uh, have Moses as at least a principal author of the material or a central author. Uh, There are many people now that believe the ink was drying on the entire Pentateuch after the exile in 538 B.C., when all the Jews came back from Babylon 
that's when all these narratives were written. So Moses didn't write anything. And it was all much, much later. Kind of a historical and legendary development that took place uh, to give consolation to the post-exilic community. Here's what's fantastic about the dating and material of Amos. Amos talks about an immense amount of material from the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He talks at length about sacrificial laws that have been abused, talks about priests, talks about uh, Sabbath laws, talks about uh, various moral norms and justice norms that were given uh, in the Pentateuch itself. Moreover, he discusses the Exodus. Why am I saying all of this? It's because Amos is an 8th century prophet living far, a long ways before the, uh, the exile in 538 BC. Amos is prophesying based on already established material. He's giving voice to undisputed laws that Israel was breaking and had known that they were breaking. By him dating his material, he doesn't just say something in the present, he says something about the legitimacy of the past. Okay, I'm done geeking out now. Moving on. From time to the man himself. Amos is a shepherd. He's a shepherd. And in chapter 7, we learn more about this uh, shepherd. In chapter 7, later in the book, when he's confronting a monarch, he says, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I was a shepherd, and I looked after sycamore trees. Uh, he's an agrarian. The, he works the land, you know? He's not, he's not Ezekiel, who was a trained priest, or even Isaiah, who was a trained prophet. People went to prophet school, did you know that? He was unschooled and undecorated. All he had was a calling from God, but that's all he needed. You may have read the novel Pollyanna. It was written in 1913. It's about an optimistic but not a dopey, not a dopey young woman. An optimistic young woman who was walking through life without uh, the infection of cynicism. And she has a fascinating relationship uh, with the Episcopal rector in town named Mr. Ford. Uh, Mr. Ford is a mean clergyman who blames all of his problems on his parishioners. You know things are going bad, by the way, when we start getting grumpy and blaming you for all our problems. Uh, and so Mr. Ford was this, um, was this complex, cranky minister, and Pollyanna uh, decided to ask him a question one day after morning prayer. said, uh, Mr. Ford, do you like being a minister? That's a highly inappropriate question for a 13-year-old to be asking a learned man of the cloth. You know? But do you like being a minister? There's some warmth in it and some, uh, some personal concern. And that simple question entirely unnerved him, got under his skin, and, truth be told, sanctified him. He came to a deeper place of, uh, of truth before God based on this simple question. Now, why do I tell that story? Um, we cannot ignore truth or a message from God, because we believe the presenter is ill-equipped. The question is never, is he preferable? The question is, is it true? We have to, in some way, distinguish the message from the, the package it comes in. So we learn something about the time and the man himself, his background in this brief autobiography. Then, as a heading or a... Uh, um, as a summary statement of what he's going to be offering in this book, he gives a certain voice or tone, quality, to the message in verse 2. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. 
the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Amos begins with this summary statement in which he portrays God as a lion, a predator who is poised to attack, roaring, using a voice, uh, using a voice and speaking to all of those neighboring nations from Jerusalem, the capital city. Now, this may have initially given uh, Amos's audience, his Jewish audience, some initial comfort. See, God is finally going to get all those people who have been making our lives miserable. He is shouting, screaming, roaring like a lion from the capital city. They need to keep reading in the book because it doesn't, it doesn't end up that way. Uh, but, um, but we have this posture of God roaring into a dark world. And the voice has a universal quality. It is heard in the pastures, the valley country. That's Amos's folk. And it's heard on the top of Mount Carmel, one of the high places. And so, so from the valley to the hills, God's voice is heard. And more than that, his voice is afflicting. The lion is not purring lullabies. The lion is here to roar and to use his voice in judgment. And we know that because the pastures mourn. And the mountains wither. What an image. And so this is, um, this is uh, Amos telling his audience, brace yourselves for what's coming. I am here to relate to you a message that will not immediately bring you a drop of consolation. So we have the autobiography, and then this voice, the lion's voice, and then the oracles. Now, God through Amos offers eight little speeches. Six of them are external. That is, they have to do with, uh, with Judah and Israel's neighbors. They all have the same shape. Now, we did not read all eight of them tonight, just the first six, uh, because reading eight would have just been too much, let's be honest, too much material. But moreover, the last two are, uh, are breakaways from the first six. The first six deal with Israel's and Judah's neighbors, the last two deal with Israel and Judah. So we'll, we'll, um, we'll begin with the neighborhood, the neighborhood, really the neighborhood bullies. Since they all have the same shape, we'll just look at the first one, not all six. Do not be much afraid. Do not worry. Uh, just the first one. We'll work our way through it. Verse 3, this is the introduction. The introduction is nearly identical in all of the, uh, the oracles. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Each oracle begins the same way, this language of for three, even four. What does that mean? It is a poetic way of expressing repetitive behaviors. In other words, God is not punishing, if you will, accidental sin, or even occasional sin. For three or even four, patterned behavior. Eric and I have a uh, therapist friend to whom we refer many people. We call her Magic Marie because she's a very gifted therapist. And she um, sometimes will talk about slip-ups in a relationship. And she has this great uh, turn of phrase. She says, the first time it's a mistake, second time it's coincidence, third time it happens it's a pattern. I ask you just to internalize that in your own experience. But uh, to move on, um, uh, this is God's way of saying, I am looking at the bully nations around you, and I am seeing patterns, destructive patterns in these nations that I will not forget to punish. Introduction. And then we move to the 
crimes of these particular nations. The crimes differ from nation to nation, but they have similar themes. The crime in, in verse 3 is simply this. Because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Two things to note about the crimes listed in these oracles. The first is that these are crimes, for the most part, that are against God's chosen people, Judah and Israel. We know this because of the language used. These threshing sledges were, were used against Gilead. Gilead is in Judah, uh, in Israel, rather. Um, and, and later in verses 9 and 11, um, it says that Edom has forsaken the brotherhood, forsaken the covenant. Now, who is Edom? Edom, that's the descent, those are the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And so the brother of Jacob and his descendants have forsaken their original bonds of love and affection and treaty with brother Jacob, became Israel. And so these crimes are coming against God's chosen people, but it's more. These aren't just crimes. These are horrific acts of violence. It says in this passage that you have run over Gilead, the people of Gilead, with sledges of iron. Not to be too graphic, and we don't know if this is literal or metaphorical. Either way, it's bad. But sledges of iron, it's a board with iron teeth pounded through it, and you use it as, a, as an implement of torture to scrape over somebody's body. And, and it says that that is what you are doing uh, to my people. And there are various sins mentioned throughout this text. You have sent entire nations into exile. You have uh, dismembered kings. You have forced abortions on women. And so we have not only crimes, but horrifically violent crimes. We have an introduction, and then a crime, and then a punishment is, is uh, made plain. Verse 4. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants of the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter in Beth Eden, and the people of Syria shall go into exile uh, to Kerr, says the Lord. The punishment is a public and catastrophic loss of power and security. It is, in one sense, justice. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Punishment fits the crime. This is what happened to Israel, a robbing of national dignity. Now I'm going to take yours away. But it's more than that. It's more than just raw justice. It is uh, disabling systemic evil. That's what God is doing. Not only am I going to pay you back, but I'm going to make sure you don't hurt people ever again. And we know that because it says that he removes the scepter, that is, removes the king. He destroys capital cities, the source of power, the locus of power. He breaks down walls or gates, the way that nations protect themselves, and then sends whole populations into exile. God is disabling uh, the, the evil regimes around his own people. It shows us that when it comes to us, God's mercy is forever, but when it comes to nations, uh, his patience is not. There is a limit to what the Lord endures, and sometimes enough is enough. I have a friend who's a minister in New Jersey who had a uh, parishioner named Teresa. Teresa had a daughter named Alicia who suffered from progeria. She's actually gone to be with God. Alicia had progeria, and progeria is this 
really awful disease in which uh, children look very, very old. They age very speedily, and they, um, you know, you can tell somebody that has progeria from you even across the room. They typically don't live, the children don't live beyond their 10th year. Teresa and her daughter Alicia were in a department store, and two older ladies were um, looking at Alicia and whispering to one another and, and laughing a little bit. And one of them said to the other, yes, I see it. And Teresa whips around and says, my daughter is not an it. Teresa had a great left hook. And she employed it. And she struck down this older lady. <laughs> and so they call the police. They haul Teresa into jail. And, and uh, she said, call my pastor. And so the pastor comes in said, Teresa, I hear that you just hit an old lady. (laughs) She said, yeah, I did. Because sometimes enough is enough. Enough is enough. This is what happens, that God's justice is sometimes enacted in the present, especially with Israel's unique theocratic status, that when Israel and Judah's neighbors messed with them. Uh, God would revisit, uh, would revisit them in judgment. And this is heavy. This is dark stuff. And I have to say, after this point, it just gets worse. <laughs> you know, happy Lent! Uh, it just gets worse. Uh, because Amos will turn on his own people, his own clan, uh, his chosen people who mirror the behavior of their neighbors. And yet, within this dark and difficult word, I believe there is the secret to repentance. The birth of repentance uh, comes from feeling in our gut a new pang, a new dis-ease, a new burden. Uh, We have to be unsettled before we can settle uh, in a wider place. Two burdens that I want to speak of now, and then I'll be done. The first burden that is a gift to us is to have the eyes of a prophet, meaning that we see the world not as it should be, but as it actually is. That we do not wear, if you will, rose-colored glasses. I know all about rose-colored glasses because when I heard the phrase, I decided to order some on Amazon. Have you ever worn rose-colored glasses? They are amazing. Everything, and more importantly, everyone looks better. Even the, the dismal days of western Pennsylvania are oddly and beautifully redeemed if you look at them through rose-colored glasses. And Amos rips them from our faces and throws them on the ground and smashes them with his foot. He wants us to see things as they really are. Wants to see our violent world for what it is. Here are some statistics, I, you know, just a few. 21,000 people die every single day from starvation or malnutrition. Uh, and this is largely related to political leaders who withhold necessary sustenance from their people. 4.8 million refugees have fled Syria because of the horrific warfare present there. 160 million people died in the 20th century due to war. of respondents from 21 countries fear being tortured illegally while in police custody. That percentage is highest in Brazil, where 80% of those uh, polled said that they were terrified of being tortured illegally by their government. 
In the United States, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by a partner, 10 million women and men per year. 58 million babies have died because of abortion. That's 10 times the number of those who perished in the Holocaust. These are not just dull statistics, not for us. These are faces, these are stories, these are souls. These are reflections of God, image bearers who have been gobbled up by the cruel and crass machinery of history and human depravity. Author Shirley Nelson wrote a book entitled The Last Year of the War, which chronicles her own religious wrestling. When Nelson was in college, she attended a chapel service in which the chaplain spoke about what was then a new and popular movement entitled The Victorious Christian Life. Whenever you hear those words, friends, run away. The chaplain said, I'm all for the victorious Christian life, but I prefer to call it the life that loses. Some Christians think that a life which wins always shines. It is a life in which we are endowed with unquenchable joy, a new strength of character, unending serenity, and steady faith, freed from the tyranny of self. We say that we want to be like Christ. But if you ask for the eyes of Christ, you may be horrified by what you see. If you ask for the heart of Christ, yours might be broken. Touching broken lives means to be touched back by the world's misery. The healer risks infection. To be a Christian means to live on the edge of a cliff, shocked and dismayed, And only God can keep us safe in that wild frontier. The eyes of a prophet, eyes that really see. But the second burden with which Amos gifts us is the stomach of a prophet. Now that's my image, admittedly, because um, I always sense um, trepidation, fear in my stomach. Uh, maybe you ha- receive, maybe it's in headaches for you and in your shoulders, but for me it's my stomach. You see, the prophets were convinced, and, and they knew it in their guts, that the, the lion shall in fact roar, and God does have a left hook, and the judge will come. Thomas Jefferson knew it, you know. He, concerning the slave trade, he said, I tremble for my country when I consider that God is just. Uh, God's certain judgment is unnerving, if we take it seriously, but also relieving, in a sense, that the lion will roar and that evil will be forever disabled. There's something profoundly relieving in this, that the lion roars when you uh, were slain with words and mocked and beaten in your high school by bullies who hated you for no reason. And the lion did roar when your father left you and left your family with nothing, and you had to scratch for years just to survive. And the lion did roar whenever you were uh, beaten up by somebody who professed that they loved you, and then you were threatened to shut up and never talk about it ever again. Uh, And your lion did roar whenever your innocence was stolen uh, from you by somebody that you trusted. Uh, This is the sobering assurance from Scripture. The lion will roar and the madness will stop. To quote the New Testament about judgment in Acts 17, he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. O 
Okay, so, so far it's been pretty dark, pretty difficult. We'll end with a little lift. Let's a little lift. We do not bear our burdens alone. We have a companion who has already walked this way. A burden bearer, if you will. One who himself was the recipient of horrific abuse and violence. Jesus is for us our Amos, our burden bearer. He holds enough power, enough holy magic to absolve the world and to disable evil for all time. When we repent, when we shove, when we turn to God and rotate toward our maker, this is the God to whom we turn, a burden bearer. May he gift us with burdens, the burdened eyes of a prophet, the burdened stomach of a prophet. And may he create beauty from ashes and sapphire kingdoms from these grains of sand. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.